This is an attempt by Foucault to lay bare what postmodernists think, what they think of as the arrogant elevation of a single utopia, a single modality, a single way of thinking, and that single way of thinking for the last 300 years has been the scientific mind. They're trying to say, we're not playing your game anymore. Foucault is trying to say that scientists are systematizing all of our thoughts into one giant way to control all of, quote, reality. Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast that's aimed at folks who want to take a second look at history, philosophy, theology, and really things old world and new. Things wise and not so wise. Things funny and usually, well, often not funny. That's this podcast. Heavy things done lightly. Today, the heavy thing is postmodernism. The, the postmodern viewpoint of life. But we look at it and try to figure out why does it sound a lot like the old world? And things might be bending back. On Watar, why are we talking about rabbits? Hi, Andrew. Hi, everybody. It's, we're doing this one on the weekend. It's a chilly weekend in South Carolina. Just back from Florida, back from about with Omicron. Man, I don't know what's going on, but does it ever just stop? I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Perhaps we're not seeing this right. Perhaps this is what life is. A series of perceived struggles that lead to metanoia, love, beauty. That's what I'm going with. Uh, it may be that that's what the postmodern conversation is going to be like for you. A struggle. Um, a type of um, pain. Uh, hell. But I want you to listen, because it's not. It's fascinating. Postmodernism is a movement. If you want to think of it as an epistemology, that might be the best. It's a way of knowing. And well, it's born out of, or comes from, or is a result of the modern age, postmodernism. And it's doing something weird. People who are becoming postmodern epistes, followers of this kind of thinking, they seem to be trying to get back to some distant gene pool. Like, postmodernists want to go home. It's hunting, this concept of the ism of postmodern. It's hunting. It's searching. It's scavenging for its papa or something like its parents. And its parents, I think, are something like what you find in the old world. Guys, today we investigate how the postmodern world, that's a heavy thing extraordinaire. I mean, these are philosophers creating this, eating snails in France and rolling crooked cigarettes and wearing polyester bell bottoms. Yeah, those dudes. It's heavy, but it's going to be light because it has to be. I think these heavy dudes are trying to create. I don't know, like the new Coke. Like, think, 
Think Coke and then think New Coke, but New Coke refuses to call itself New Coke. Or heck, it won't even call itself a beverage. Actually, in the case of postmodernists, they won't even call their New Coke wet. They won't call it anything. It's, I'll explain in a minute. Categorization is an irritation to the postmodernists. We have this epistemology, a way of thinking that we think might be trying to not be a way of thinking. Another way of understanding postmodernism is as a virus, their words, not mine. Many postmodernists from the 50s, 60s, and 70s thought of themselves as simply destroyers of modernism. Destroyers of, on this show, what we call the new world. So if we want to think of postmodernism as a well-synchronized drip of water and modernism, the new world, as your forehead, drip, drip, drip. If you want to think of postmodernism as that drip on your forehead that cracks open your wits and drives you nuts, I think that's what it is. I think it's meant to scramble us. And I think that scramble is heading us back to the old world. So let's just do this. Now, if you're a postmodernist and you're listening to this, welcome. And also, you're going to be pissed in about 20 seconds. I'm going to introduce four principles of postmodernism. They wouldn't call them that. But the best we can do on this I don't know, old world, new world show we try to go down the middle is to talk in a way where we can all sort of have this same moment. But postmodernists would not like this same categorization, same category moment, but we're going to do it, okay? So I'm going to call them the four drips, the four water drips that are trying to break open your skull. The first drip, the first principle is there is no objective natural reality. So as you search the internet and you see something about postmodern, or if you see something where somebody says, your truth and my truth, this is a type of postmodern thinking. There is no descriptive view of nature or history made by scientists or really anyone that can be thought of as true or false. So here's a French word for you. Actually, it's a French proper noun. Michel Foucault. Michael Foucault. F-O-U-C-A-U-L-T. Okay, he writes, and he's really one of the founders of this kind of thinking. Although I don't think the thinking is founded, I think it's emerging from a modernist mindset. It's emerging, and they're simply trying to encapsulate it, these philosophers. Foucault says, the Enlightenment, which discovered science and the liberties, also invented the disciplines. And that's wordplay. Because guess what disciplines here is? It's not like the art of anthropology. I am in the discipline of literature or anthropology. No. Discipline for him is a word he's using on purpose. And the purpose is to get you to think of punishment. Discipline. Right? 
The Enlightenment discovered liberties and in turn also the disciplines. And by disciplines here, Foucault means what happens to you when you go to prison. Corrections. <laughs> There's something in Foucault that is so irritated by the Enlightenment that what he seizes is this project to get everything in line, and that's a type of human bondage. And so he writes about it. By the way, he born 1926, dies 1984. So if you're getting older like me, 1984 didn't seem that long ago. If you're younger, stick with me. Well, hopefully I won't just kick off right here on this podcast, but stick with me because it gets younger in a minute. So basically, if you want to think of postmodernism as the thing emerging, as the thing that comes after the old world and after the new world, and now the postmodern world, right? You've got a bunch of people who are starting to say something like science isn't working. Here's an example that, I don't know, comes to mind after doing some research. Think of defining a species. That's a very new world thing, right? Before creating his taxonomy, the greatest scientist of his time, Carl Linnaeus, he's doing his biz in the 1750s and 40s. Linnaeus is a Swedish guy. He dies in 1778, right around the time of the Battle of uh, Yorktown, right? Just before that, during the American Revolution. Here's what Linnaeus wrote as he tried to define what a species was. Now, this is New World Science and their development of the concept of race. And Linnaeus is on the cutting edge. And he's like, I want to tell you what a species is. But before I can do that, I need to develop, quote, a complete knowledge of everything that is relevant. Whoa. What's a species? Start with a complete list, knowledge of everything that is relevant to the concept species. Whoa. There's no single experience that Linnaeus can point to to think of and call someone a part of a species. Remember, this was a developed set of vocabulary. Rather, Species, in this case, is a theoretical concept created by Linnaeus as a way to systematically integrate and explain all these crazy diverse experiences. So, like, what defines membership in a plant species? That was his challenge. And what he said before he got started was, well, I got to think of everything that's relevant to this notion of species. And so that's why you get these massive lists during the early part of the scientific revolution of the Enlightenment. Everyone's coding and decoding. That's when you get the birth of the dictionary. Because in order to understand one thing, the whole goal is to understand everything. Right? So what makes something a species, a plant, for example? Is it the shape of the leaves or the stem? Is it the, I don't know, the color? Is it the story of the leaf told by those who use it or know about it, right? Some 
Some plants are well known to certain, I don't know, ethnic groups. The Lenape Indians of the East Coast know more about, say, I don't know, pine trees. Is that true? Then other groups. The point is, is what do I use to know what a species is? Which people use it? What are the outcomes of the plant? Like, can it, I don't know, can it help you cool a, a rug burn? Like aloe. Is that how I speciatize it? By making it talk about its usage. How do we even start to understand this? Linnaeus was asking that. Linnaeus defined species in the end as in terms of reproduction. Many botanists and zoologists before the 18th century defined it primarily by a reference to lore and mythology. So they, they categorized before Linnaeus and his very scientific way of thinking, they categorized it according to the story told about it. But Linnaeus changed the definition. And for postmodernists, that is something like changing the discourse. They use that word, discourse. Linnaeus didn't do anything about reality. He just changed the discourse. And for you sitting out there, that's something like changing the narrative. For postmodernists, they don't trust Linnaeus's way of doing things, categorizing species a certain way, because they don't trust his narrative. They don't trust his body, his person. They don't trust who he is. Now, in 2022, we can add stuff. They don't trust that he's a white male from Northern Europe because that's how he is actually deciding what is a plant, an aloe plant, and what is not because of his lived experiences, postmodernism. So for the enlightened rationalists, for the New Worlders, Thinking is representing things. In other words, it's like an independent act that we all do. Thinking is categorizing. But postmodernists don't like this kind of, quote, thinking. And guess what? In the old world, studying history and living in communities and countries where the old world still hangs on, the old world cultures, They don't like that kind of thinking either. They don't categorize in the same way. The old world rejects much of what postmodernism is rejecting. The old world likes the narrative concept too. You see, the old world likes the idea of resemblance between two things, of knowing one thing by knowing the other. And it's impossible to know the one without the other. It's impossible to constantly black and white everything because everything is is in relationship. So the great notion of the old world was that that what could be known could only be known within the narrative of the group. Does that make sense? Known things had to be checked against the other, the group. And the proper other was the one shared your tradition, your way of life. Often, I mean, often, the old world group was informed by some type of present God, a divinity, a present divinity deeply connected to the day-to-day activities of their human creations. 
divinities and the creation were connected day to day. And so the group that had the god, let's call it Zeus, or let's call it Thor, that group held the narrative. They spoke the same way about the same things, and therefore they could check you. Science is almost the opposite. They don't trust it because everyone belongs to the same narrative. Yeah. So, the, the old world with its, its narrative families, its groups of related blood ties, its connection one to the other through some sort of embedded genealogies and stories. Well, think domes and caverns and caves. The old world with their domes, right? They, they demonstrated a type of cavernous reality or a heaven that comes down to earth dynamically, whereby once under the dome, you and I, but not, not the others, but you and I, we stand among all that is. We're connected to all that is within our domed mosque, within our domed church, within our cavernous secret mystical place where we worship and do sacrifice. The old world is all about sharing that cavernous space. Why is it a cavern? Because it's underground. It's mystically removed, like Christ in the cave. And that mystical location is where the narrative is. It's where you find the word. Right. And you did this all as a group, and you did it as a group speaking the same language. Really important. And other groups could not do it the way you did it. Not because they're like, incapable. You're running me down. I'm equal. No, you're not in the group, bro. So you can't. By definition. Yeah. The domes of ancient Greece, the Orthodox East, Islam, the temples of the Scythians, the stupas of the Hindu... Even the vaulted dome topped rectangular tombs of the Han Chinese, go look at all this stuff. They all point to this sense of being under and within. That's a narrative. And that narrative was both founded by and it also created the founding of the group. In other words, the narrative gave you the truth, but it also was the ground of the truth. Old school. It did both things at once. Yeah. It told you it and allowed for it. And that's a lot of postmodern understanding of truth as well. It depends on the group. Yeah. Postmodernism is inching back. Yeah. I really think that's true. So one of that, that first pillar, something about narrative in the group. And science can't tell you reality. Okay, what's the second pillar of postmodern thought? Well, before we go there, don't you think we should hear about KP Journeys in 2022? At Roll the Music, Andrew. First Things Foundation. First Things Foundation is us, the people who do this podcast. KP Journeys. You come with First Things Foundation and we feed you the old world experience. Writ large and up to your ankles in it. 
We live simply on our trips, but we don't go all the way down and just have to like struggle out for every, it's, it's not poverty porn. No, but we'll take you and you'll get to see the real deal of West Africa, the Caucasus, but I really like to live in Central America. And also we're going to take people this year up to Appalachia. So think about joining us. Get in touch with us at info at first-things.org or you can write me directly. You'll find all this in the pod notes. That is our KP journeys. And we hope you go on them. Back to the show. So the first idea science can't really teach you about reality. The second drip, the thing landing on your head to blow it apart, the postmodern goal of blowing apart the modern age The second drip is, the second principle is, science and technology are tools that cannot be expected to, ready for this, make human life better. Yeah. You you find this again and again and again in postmodern thought. Now, they're not anti-technology. It's not a means by which to make mankind better because it is only possible technology when understood through a certain lens. That's really their beef. Yeah. So I'll just tell you a quick, simple old world example to help you see how these two ideas are coming together. Uh, It's a cool example. It's funny. And it's also true, I think, but it's said in tradition. It's said in the Orthodox Eastern tradition of Christianity. And in that tradition, it's said that Hagia Sophia, the massive church built in the 500 ADs is still standing today. If you've been there, then you know. It's massive. Well, it had this hypocost built below the floors in the fashion of the old Roman architecture. It, a hypocost, well, it's basically a heating system for big Roman baths. And, well, the monks of Hagia Sophia knew this invention of the Romans to be a heater, for sure. I mean, they weren't like, tar, tar, what is that? What is that? What are the thing? They're heating up the church. No, they knew what it was, but they didn't think much of it. Remember, I'm telling you this story because it's going to help us understand the postmodern thought. They didn't use it to heat the church, even though they could have. Even when it got cold, they barely used it. In tradition, it said that they altered the hypocost to make it shake in a way and in a magnitude of order to create a profound icon or image of an earthquake. They used the heating system that the Romans loved to heat up their water with to actually shake the church in a way to create, oh my God, an earthquake. But it's not actually an earthquake. Why did they do this? (laughs) because there's a moment in the Orthodox liturgy when the the air, this cloth, in Slavonic it's vozduk, when the cloth that the priest is using to prepare the sacrificial meal, the holy meal, that cloth is shaken above the chalice as a symbol or an image of earthquake and they added to the image by shaking the church with this hypocost, this heating system. And as the story goes, the modifications they made did one hell of a job at shaking the whole church, but it also did one hell of a job of heating the, the church itself. Like, it was a bonus. And that ain't easy. Hagia Sophia's a giant. 
And that's the story, except for here's the last part of it. No one ever bothered to go back in, look at all the ways they had changed and altered the hypocost, and actually fit it and retrofit it to heat not just the church, but everybody's homes. There was nobody standing there thinking, hey, let's turn this thing into a money cash cow. No, the monks who were really well-trained in all types of variations on science in 500 AD, they wanted it to shake the church so that they could properly fit the church with the right image in order to properly serve God. And that's pretty nutty. And that's pretty postmodern. Here's what I mean. Something about technology as not in the conversation when it came to the old world understanding of progress, growth, and bettering mankind in the future is in that story. There wasn't an immediate inclination to fix stuff so we were all more comfortable in this story. The immediate inclination was to serve and worship God because that was the narrative of the culture. That's how people became better. You see, the story tells us that the scientific techne was not the priority. It wasn't being, science wasn't being beheld in the soul. It wasn't processed by the minds of these monks and sent out through the eyes of their bodies as possibility. It wasn't potential that they saw in the heat. Well, it was potential that they saw in this machine to shake the church because that was pleasing to God. The potential wasn't in comfort or sales or scale. It was just in finding a way to more properly commune with God. Now, if you hear me saying that's like, way to go, monks. That's not what I'm saying. They're the best. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to show you that there was a narrative that didn't allow for certain possibilities. And those possibilities were scale, big business, fix everybody's problems with heating. The possibilities were all about the liturgical offering. And that's pretty interesting. And this is exactly what Foucault and so many of the early postmodernists are saying. They think that modernity, the new world, has defined human individuals as regulated subjects, as things, as docile bodies. And he calls this thing, collections of information. We are collections of information in the new world, in the technological new world. And that doing this to humans, they say, has not only become bad for humans, but it has become bad for the way humans do life. So here's Heidegger. Heidegger is a German philosophy from, philosopher from the 20s and 30s. Huge influence on postmodernism and on Foucault. Listen to what he says about technology. Quote, technology, rather than merely revealing things to us as useful tools, is a mode of revealing the world. Technology is a mode of revealing the world, not just giving us things that are cool. It's a mode of knowing. Think of a mode of knowing as a car. 
we get to our conclusions by taking a ride on the technology train. And if we don't have the technology train, we don't have any conclusions that are technological in nature. The mode of knowing is technological and scientific. It's the only way in to knowledge now as we adopt this way of thinking. But, but listen to this as well. Remember, we're trying to figure out the principles of postmodernism and how they are weirdly ancestors of the old world. Here's what Heidegger says about what happens when techne becomes the mode of understanding. Here's what he says will happen. If the way we know is this technological mind. He says, when we know things technologically, objects of our world showing up to us will show up to us as standing reserve. That's his phrase. That is, the things we interact with all become to us something like a resource for our utilization. The technological way of knowing will make us see everything as utility or as potential for our own being or well-being. Dehumanization, anyone? Actually, it's better. It's not dehumanization. It's transhumanization. This is us becoming like the stuff that we know. It's not just us using the stuff we know. It's the stuff we know using us in order for us to get clarity about life. Yikes! That's why they're making movies like The Matrix, you guys. Come on! Remember, the postmodernists are a bunch of guys in polyester who are freaking out. They're like loins are all shrunk up inside their polyester pants because they're nervous, because they're surveying the landscape. And they're coming to conclusions that human beings are losing something like, well, the ability to see. Now, they're not going to go all soul on you. Because they can't use those categories because they've been used up already by them Christians who are categorical and Western. They don't use these words. They can't. It like would defeat the purpose. And this is where it gets crazy. Yeah, because if they do, they're going to end up back where they started in some way. So they're not going to use these scientifically induced conver- vocabulary because vocabulary matters. But it can't produce reality. This is why you see all kinds of crazy stuff in the postmodern movement. It's like people writing thesis that make no sense on purpose. And the whole point of the thing was when you're done, you couldn't make sense of it. Hence, therefore, it has value. Yeah, I'll try to figure that out. Anyway, the whole idea is they're trying to say one thing about the scientific mind. In the end, it cuts out certain things and decides on other things and elevates those other things into a type of thinking that is total in nature. Total in nature. It is totalitarian type thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what they argue the 20th century was about. Ready for the third principle of postmodernism, which I'm not allowed to say because there are no principles of postmodernism. What? Ready to go? Ready to do it? The third drip. The third drip on your forehead. It's meant to crack it open and torture you into a new reality. You ready? Language cannot refer to a reality outside of itself. It fits, right? Foucault uses the term heterotopia. Heterotopie en français, si tu aimes ça. 
So heterotopia, it describes spaces that have more layers of meaning or relationships to other places that immediately meet the eye. In general, heterotopia is a physical representation or approximation of a utopia. If you don't like that heavy sentence, try this one. It's the bed you sleep on, not the bed you think of. If I say bed, right now, bed. Okay, let's do it together. Bed. You all just thought bed. I know you thought bed, but I bet you didn't think the bed that I'm looking at with this blue nice cover. I don't think you saw that. But you know what I'm talking about. I say bed, you know the big utopian idea, but you sleep on your bed with its particular physical representations. That's the heterotopia. There's the big idea and the little idea. Foucault explains the link between utopias and heterotopias using the metaphor of a mirror. A mirror is a utopia because the image reflected is a placeless place, his words. It's an unreal virtual place that allows one to see one's own visibility, one's own reality. The mirror lets you see not it, it lets you see you, but still the mirror has an it. It is real. But here's the freaky part. The reality of the mirror is to never actually show you itself. The heterotopia of the mirror is at once absolutely real. There's a mirror. Relating with the real space surrounding it and absolutely unreal because it's creating a simulacrum or a virtual image of the seer. This is an attempt by Foucault to lay bare what postmodernists think, what they think of as the arrogant elevation of a single utopia, a single modality, a single way of thinking, and that single way of thinking for the last 300 years has been the scientific mind. They're trying to say, we're not playing your game anymore. Foucault is trying to say that scientists are systematizing all of our thoughts into one giant way to control all of, quote, reality. Yep. Science as a th- an episte, as an epistemology, as a way of being, it all takes us to have to live in one big, giant heterotopia determined by the techne thinkers, by the rationalists. Basically, we all got to live in the same damn bed. When I say bed, you not only know exactly the bed I'm talking of, but exactly what every bed looks like. Everything gets systematized. Yeah. And this kind of thinking is in direct alignment with the old world understanding of image and iconography. Big time. Father Silouan Justiniano, who's been on this show, he's an expert in iconography. Andrew, make sure you put in notes so we can get to Father Justiniano's website. Well, his paintings. He says this, abstraction, and he said, like, what's up, man? Like the extraction, the abstraction, the notion of something real, not present in the material reality, yo. So what he says is abstraction. I love this guy. Abstraction for the postmodern man became 
and has become an escape from the tyranny of science. You see, Father Silouan's trying to say that abstraction has become a, has become a kind of pure art for postmodernists. Yeah. And in the future, abstraction will be how all art is known. Because it takes us away from this ugh, heavy, daunting material reality. Yeah. Right? And he goes on to say that the ancient Eastern and Orthodox understanding of the icon, the image, embraces both abstraction and naturalism. Justin Yano talks about how crazy similar the icon is to Foucault's idea of the mirror. The icon, like the mirror, is real, right? When you look at an icon of a saint, it's real. It allows us to see it, but it allows us to see who we are. And here's the coolest part. It allows us to see into a whole new type of reality, just like a mirror. But of course, the similarities kind of end there for Father Silouan, because he puts it like this. The abstract way an icon looks, the abstraction of it all, the way the mountains are too small for the big sitting saint, you know, you've seen that, or the lion's too big, or the lion's too small, like everything doesn't fit right. For Father, this abstraction is different because in the orthodox way of things, it's different from postmodernism, because in the orthodox way of things, it can only be participated in relationally. It's only known when you enter the cave or the domed cavern or the Orthodox tradition. Foucault and Derrida, that's another guy we will talk to, we'll talk about in part two. Derrida or all these, these postmodernists, or your dad on a bender, or your buddy who's just, uh, I don't know, and didn't get enough sleep. I don't know, this podcast, especially this podcast, just Joe Blow can't just start telling you about the icon. They have to enter the cave. And in the cave, they'll, 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 they'll encounter the narrative. And then in that narrative, they'll be able to make sense, at least a little bit, of the icon, of the image. Like Christ on his birthday. Like Jesus' birthday. The incarnation in the cave. But still... You do see that this notion of narrative, of discourse, it's still in play. It's like the postmodernists. You can feel the similarities between Foucault and Father Silouan. What up? You can feel it, especially when it comes to reality and how their take on it. It leads you to the next weird postmodern conclusion that's pretty irritating when you first think about it. It takes you to a whole bunch of loud Karens out there trying to tag along in this idea of narrative and group identity and telling you you can't understand black people because, or you can't understand white people. Well, I don't know if they say it like that. You can't understand other people, brown people. You can't understand them unless you're brown. It takes you on this road toward critical race theory. It toward woke people. And that's why we should all be at peace. Because the postmodern experiment is a project in trying to get back to some sort of narrative reality. The logos, anyone? Yeah. It's nuts. Logos is word. Word up. Logos is Christ. Logos is how we know. And I think these cats, all these loud, crazy Karens, I think 
they're just trying to scratch out some new meaning. And in that way, we should all give Karen a hug. But I think. And then, by the way, there's a lot of Karens on both sides of the aisles these days. Every Karen needs a hug. Next time you see a Karen, give her a hug. It doesn't matter what's coming out of her mouth. She's just searching for layered meaning. A way to live, man. Let's just everybody hug each other out. What are we doing? Voila! C'est là. C'est ça. C'est postmodernism. We've reached the end. Anyway, kind of. We could go on with LGBTQR. We could go on. We could go on with these ideas. But what I'm trying to say is do this heavy thing, but let's do it lightly and realize that, man, these drips on your forehead will blow up your brain, but maybe your brain is whacked because of the kind of total, total control a certain type of mindset has taken over. And maybe we got to be a little cool, a little chill with some of the chaos. Because some of the chaos is actually meant to crack your brain, like the drip drip of postmodernism. Now, you better have something in your in your heart when your brain cracks open. You better have your noose. You better be deeply in touch with the reality of God. Otherwise, when your head cracks, then the body's gonna follow and your heart's got no shot. So let's stop there, shall we? Now I'm just starting to sound like preacher man. Woof. Similarities, heavy things that line up lightly, postmodernism, Christianity, they don't really line up, okay? I'm not saying that. If you're going to be like, if you're one of these cats that loves to do you some internet philosophizing, oh, wait, like me, don't get mad at me. It's just heavy things lightly, but there's something here. And if you're a postmodern thinker, which I, I, it's not really easy to be a thinker and be postmodern. You're more like a postmodern beer. If you're flying a flag or something, it's safe to say that you are groping toward a whole lot of what's old world stuff. Which, well, I don't know, looks a whole lot like bad and good of that time period, the old world. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff in the old world. We can go off the rails, old world, new world, middle world, upside down world. But there's some similarities here. Right? It's some sort of spiral in play where we've seen this story before, but it's a different story. It's not quite a circle being closed. It's a very closely aligned spiral that's heading somewhere. And we've seen it before. It's not the exact same thing, but we've seen it. There's elements of it that are true. So think about that. Postmodernism sure feels old school these days, but you know what? Feels like that feels like it should in 2022. Shenis Marjos. That means to you the victory. It's often said at a KP table in the Georgia Republic. That's our pop for today. Thanks for coming along. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwart, the beloved Andrew Schwart. Hello, Andrew Schwart. Daniel Paternos helps him out. Our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's what I told you about at the intro. We send people to do smart sustainable, cool, loving, relational projects. Well, we send them to build capacity for projects all around the world so that people who are deeply impoverished, well, I don't know, they can help. We help them build their dreams for a better life. Hey, in the first things world, Greenville KP Restaurant, closer and closer. Looks like first week in March, last week in February. 
field workers were still recruiting, were filling a couple spots in East Africa. That is a thing on the agenda. Pod class, it started. What is race? Old world and new. Jump in. You'll like it. Go online. Check it out. You'll find us on our website, www.first-things.org. Share this with your friends. Hit like. Nakfamdis. Hasta luego. Well, don't hit Nakfamdis. That doesn't make sense. Nakfamdis is a way of saying goodbye in Georgian. But hit like. And then tell your friends. Nakfamdis. Hasta luego. Kambufo. Peace out.